Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still on our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 12. In the previous episode, if you can remember, we talked about the differences between John's baptism of water versus Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. We learned about why Jesus actually needed to be baptized to, quote, fulfill all righteousness, why he needed the Holy Spirit as a fully functioning human being, uh, God purposefully limiting himself. And then we started to look at all of the different pictures of the Spirit descending, God speaking, Jesus praying while that was happening, and now we are about to go into his ministry, starting with his temptation in the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. All right. You you did it. You got me back. I'm focused. I know where we're at. <laughs> I can actually deliver. But you know what? Sadly, I'm going to have to start with a little, it's going to feel like a, like a side story or something. Okay. But this is us trying, you know, we're just trying to cover all the text. Um, the next in line would be Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Don't forget to check the presentation page. We got some show notes for you, as always. That's right. Yeah. Um, and this one, it's kind of weird because this is where uh, Luke started his genealogy. So we've been here before. But Luke has this real quick statement where he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this, uh, and and we keep telling people, you know what, hold it kind of loosely, you know, it's all speculation, we're just trying to do our best, trying to make sense of the scriptures. And this is one that's a little bit weird. Um, we have talked about all the way through, and it feels like this the, the text is leading us to Jesus being about 34 years old at this point. And so it feels a little odd that Luke begins by saying, hey, he starts his ministry, he's about 30. And so you don't really know. From Luke's perspective, is about 30? I mean, you know, is is that a good way of saying 34? Or is Luke really suggesting, no, 34 is a little late. You, he was, it was earlier than that, right? And we don't really know. And so this this is one of those verses that makes you, okay, don't get too firm in what you think is going on. This might you know, help you be a little more reasonable when you hear people come up with other ideas and all those things. Just leave room. It's okay. It's not going to hurt anything. Uh, But I just didn't want to skip over that verse. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, uh, Jesus is going to begin his ministry. And like you said, the temptation. So we're looking at Matthew chapter four, verses one and two, Mark chapter one, verses 12 and 13, Luke chapter four, verses one and two. And I think in this case, I'm going to go ahead and read Luke. He says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. 
And I'd just like to point out, if you're not following along in the ESV and you happen to be reading the so-called only divinely inspired version, you might see it end with something like, he was afterward and hungered. <laughs> but don't be fooled. All we're saying is he was hungry. All right? That's right. So anyway, actually, I think that only happens in the Matthew version, but whatever. We know what we're talking about. But here's the thing I want to point out. This is important. Um, Luke and Matthew say that he was led by the Spirit. But if you look at Mark, it says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And that word, I mean, the, the, the Greek text there, it's really imperative, very, very strong language that the Spirit was driving him out. And so, you know, if one is saying it led him and one is, you know, you know saying it, it really drove him out, well, maybe what we could take away from that is that whatever the Spirit was leading him to do, this was really important. It was a necessary thing. And of course, what does Jesus do? He obeys. Yeah, he obeys. And uh, I think we can even see in this a little picture of our Christian walk. There are times we're going to be led into the wilderness, and it's a necessary thing. And so, you know what? We need to go with it, right? Uh, Again, the wilderness, I know we talked about this before. It isn't just sand dunes, but it's not to say it isn't, you know, raw and rugged. I wouldn't want to go there uh, just like without any help. You know what I'm saying? You could easily lose your life there if you didn't have any food or shelter. But most importantly for us, I think, we see for us another example of God using the wilderness for our benefit. That's an important picture that we keep holding on to. God is going to use the wilderness for your benefit. So quit hating it so much. Quit fighting it so much. Look for what God is doing in the midst. So here, uh, like in this particular example, it says that he didn't eat for 40 days. We actually see God sustaining him, providing for Jesus, you know, his faithful one in that wilderness. It's another image, another picture for us. And just like Israel, just like John the Baptist, just like Jesus, we may need the time in the wilderness. But if God is involved, it's for our good. Mm -hmm. So important lesson kind of buried in the text there for us, right? Is another way to think about the wilderness a wadi in the Middle East, um, a W-A-D-Y, which is a, it's like a deep canyon that precipitation happens very rarely, and canyon walls are extremely high, it's easy to get lost, but there are places like oases where there is fresh water every now and then, and that there's plants to eat, but those are few and far between. I know Baymaw Discipleship, maybe we can put it in the show notes, has an episode about images of the desert, and Marty Solomon talks about what a wadi looks like in all of the biblical references throughout the story of characters going through areas like that. Could Jesus have been in an area like that? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because Marty's, uh, he do, doesn't he do like four parts? He does. On the day. Yeah. That actually is a great little bit in Marty's uh, podcast mm-hmm. that the whole Bema, is it called Bema Discipleship? It is. Yeah. That is a great resource uh, for certain things. And this, oh man, I, I really enjoyed what he did about the desert there. So yeah, if you want a, a, a better picture of what Jesus is experiencing, what he's seeing, uh, the places he's going, those would be fantastic. Yeah. We'll make so, sure yeah. and put them in the show notes. So just check the description and there'll be a link there for you. Yeah, yeah, good one. I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, it also says here that he fasted, and it's kind of interesting because you know that we uh, are prone to try to relate things back to things that we see in the Old Testament, Um, and so we might real quickly want to relate this to Moses, but just to point it out, nothing in this text suggests that he is fasting from water. It only talks about food. And at the end, that he is hungry, doesn't say anything about being thirsty. It could be true. It just doesn't say it. So, uh, but it's interesting, right, that, that he's doing that 40 because days. The, the Exodus version, it does say that Moses did not have anything to drink as well. I'm exactly I'm pretty sure, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the connection's there, uh, but it, it's a little different, a little different. And then also, I mean, this is important. Satan, he's mentioned uh, specifically by name in Mark. Uh, the others call him the devil, right? But w- w- whichever devil, uh, Satan, it's devil is a translation of the Hebrew Satan. And that Satan or Satan, they yeah. would say, is it, it just means the adversary. So whatever that word is in Greek for devil that pretty much matches up really well with Satan in the Old Testament. And then the actual like proper name, Satan, it's just a transliteration of that same Hebrew word. So one of them's calling him Satan like a proper name, and the other one's just using it as the word. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the question is, who is this guy? I, unless you really know a lot about your Bible, you probably don't know a lot about him. And I would even suggest that if you do know a lot about your Bible and you have heard a lot of things, well, there's a chance you've heard a lot of things wrong. At least that's what happened to us. For whatever it's worth, he's explicitly mentioned in a few places. We're not going to go there, but I give you a few references. First uh, Chronicle 21.1, Job 1, uh, verses 6 through 12. Job 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and uh, there are more, but the funny thing is, he's mentioned all over in the New Testament, which is a topic we're going to have to address as we go along, but here's who he is. Uh, The Satan, that word, that original Hebrew word, means adversary. He's one who, on one hand, opposes God. But on the other hand, he opposes us. And in what way is he opposing us and, and why? What, what is that? Well, his desire is for you to not be faithful and loyal and obedient. That's what he wants. Now, there's a funny thing that goes on sort of culturally for, for the Jews. Okay, they're going to, I think, 
in relation to us, it's going to feel like they're downplaying Satan a little bit, and and they're looking more at our own desires, our own actions, our own disobedience. But on the flip side, Christians, well, they seem to want to downplay their own desires, their own actions, their own disobedience, and they just kind of blame it, blame everything on Satan. I think for us, what we need to recognize is that there is a very real battle that each of us face against both. You really shouldn't be downplaying either one. There is a real enemy who's working to get you to mess up. And you, as a creature with a free will, are fighting yourself all the time, wanting to do the right thing and finding yourself not. It's a very real battle against both. But this, I think, is a thing that gets minimized in the church a lot, and so we're going to try to maximize it or emphasize it. We need to recognize that we have the ability to overcome both. You can defeat your own desire, your own will, your own flesh, etc. You have the ability to defeat Satan and his schemes, all that he's trying to do to get you off the path, especially when you remember that we are assisted by the Spirit. So it's an important thing. So, so we're going to learn, I think, probably a little more as we go about you know who Satan is, what he's trying to do, all that kind of thing. Um, but we need to bring it home and recognize that we're fighting both and that we have the ability to overcome. It's an important theme. Jesus yeah. being human is, is a, an important part of that theme, right? Yeah, this is a perfect example of the world and reality not being black and white. There's yeah. gray going on with both yeah. things happening. And then it also makes me think of another Marty Solomon reference whenever he talks about Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden story, the big climax of what the serpent was trying to get Eve and Adam to act on is saying that you're just a beast. Like, I, you know, you yeah. should act on your desires just like animals do. And God, in response, was saying, no, like, you're created in my image. You don't have to act like a beast and on your impulses and on your desires. You have the ability to choose otherwise. And that was the big crux of that situation oh. was choosing to not. Yeah, and he got that from Rabbi Foreman, which, yeah. oh, that dude Much is love. awesome. Yeah, we're we're doing, you know, Gospels, New Testament, whatever, so we're not going to talk about him near as much, but, man, Rabbi Foreman at Aleph Beta, another awesome dude, mm-hmm. awesome dude. But, uh, okay, so this brings up, though, so now we got Satan, we got Jesus, he's going out in the desert, he's going to be uh, tempted, right? I, I want to make a distinction here. There's a difference between temptation and testing. Temptation, it's, it's like it has its own hopeful result. Temptation hopes to bring the downfall of the tempted. So that's the, the, the realm that Satan would be operating in. However, testing, it also has its own hopeful result. And that is the proving or the building up of the one being tested. Big difference. 
Temptation wants to tear you down. Testing wants to prove or build you up. Now, again, it's obvious. Devil wants to use the opportunity to bring Jesus down. But notice, who was it that was leading or driving Jesus into the desert? The Spirit. Yeah. So we see, in this particular instance, God is using those same intended temptations as tests. So Satan's like, all right, I'm going to get this guy. And God's going, oh, this should be fun. I'm going to use it this way, right? Temptations and tests, it's the same thing. Can I play devil's advocate really quick? Well, sure. If any particular listener is thinking about Jesus's brother, James, in his letter, chapter 1, verse 13, when someone says, let no one say when he is tempted, quote, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So could you help us out fitting what James is saying in with what you just said with how they, they kind of play off of one another? Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's a perfect connection because, I mean, it explicitly says God will not tempt you. But again, I'm trying to to help a little bit by defining what is temptation. Temptation is something that is intended to bring you down, downfall, right? Testing, on the other hand, is building up. So there is no question about Satan's motive in all of this. He wants to bring Jesus down. But God is not unwilling to allow you to go through things that prove who and what you are. Now, God isn't doing it because he wants to bring you down. God, quite the contrary, wants to show you, that's the proving, show you who you are, what you're made of, or to actually build you up. Maybe you don't even know what you're capable of. Now, A lot of times, I think you'll see temptation sort of operating on its own, and you'll see testing operating on its own. But in this, we see this this beautiful image of Satan trying to use it as a temptation, something to bring him down, and God coming alongside and saying, hey, you know what? The Spirit's in you. Spirit's with you now. In this temptation... I'm going to go along with you, and it's going to be a proving or a building up. And so it's not as if God is reaching in and going, oh, no, 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 you can't use it as a temptation. I'm going to use it as a test. It's more like God is going, okay, yeah, if this temptation is going to come along, I'm willing to go along with that. But by the time I'm finished by the time my son is finished, my child, my disciple, whatever you want to call it, my Christian, whatever. By the time it's finished, God will have used it as a test to prove or build up. So Satan's goal, Satan's motivation, Satan's plans will have been thwarted, and God's intentions are the things that will actually have come to pass. So, I don't know. I think it's a cool picture where you see, even when you think the devil is attacking you, God may be in the midst 
and actually using it for your good, and you're going to come out of it built up rather than torn down. Okay. That helps. Kind of makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, again, uh, what I'm uh, what I'm hoping to do is apply this to our daily lives, right? Regardless of the origin, whether it's God who's who's actually coming to test you for the purpose of building you up, or if it's Satan coming to tempt you because he wants to tear you down, it doesn't matter what you think it is or what it feels like in the midst of it or whatever, we can face it all knowing that ultimately God is in our corner, he's on our side, he's got our back, and it's all for our good. You could, okay, don't take this too literally, but you could almost say, even if you are going through temptation, you can face it as if it's a testing. You can just look at everything as testing. It's an opportunity to prove yourself. It's an opportunity to grow in God, with God, right? It's a, it's a great, it's, it's just a great picture. Um, recognizing that you do have your own flesh, your own will, your own desires, you've got Satan, you've got all of those things, but in the midst of all of those, there is building up. There is, there's proving that, that, that you can count on, and that's good for you. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, another thing, uh, we mentions the 40 days. I just wanted to sort of relate that. There's a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament. We know we've got Moses on Sinai. You talked about it. He didn't have food or water, specifically mentioned. Um, you had the spies that went into the land uh, for 40 days. And then you have Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years. They got one year for each spy day, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and then you have... Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, and that sort of reverses it. Now he gets one day for each of the wandering years, right? (laughs) Uh, But in that, even though uh, we could talk about the water or anything else saying, you know, that it's not a perfect match, but think of how tight these connections are to Moses. Again, it's that idea of Moses is the first redeemer, and the Messiah, Jesus, is the ultimate redeemer. And I'm sure there are other 40-day examples, whatever, Uh, a really good one that is modern is this Jewish tradition. They have 40 days of repentance leading up to Yom Kippur. Now, I say modern. It originates back in the Torah, but they continue to do it, and this this 40 days of repentance, that in and of itself relates to all these other 40-day periods that we're talking about. They may not do it, but it also relates to Jesus's 40 days. So that is an awesome picture. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another thing I wanted to point out, because you'll see this so much when you're reading through Old Testament, Torah, whatever. After not eating for 40 days, Jesus was hungry. But notice, he didn't grumble. Okay, maybe his stomach did, but <laughs> he didn't grumble. That was the recurring theme that you see in all those old stories. So it's a neat mm-hmm. picture, just in and of itself. But are you ready for oh, the yeah. temptations? Oh, yeah. All right. Here we go. Uh, again, I think I'm going to read from Matthew. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and also Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It's amazing how those are kind of lining up like that. Hmm. Anyway, Matthew says this, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so the tempter. We know who this is. It's the devil, right? We've talked about temptation versus testing, all of that. The devil's plan is to tempt. God's plan is to test. Can, but here's, uh, I'm going to ask you, Samuel. Can Jesus really be tempted? I mean, he's God, right? Well, if he has the same human capacities that we have as a human, I don't see why he couldn't. He had a will of his own. Yeah. See, here's the thing. You don't even have to go to the God versus man versus both versus whatever. You don't even have to go there. Just think about it logically. It is impossible for any being to actually give in to temptation unless the temptation is real. Do do you see what I'm saying? It, It can't be real. It can't be considered temptation if Jesus can't actually and for real give into it. Otherwise, it's not temptation. Yeah. It's, it's a continuation of our, you know, he lived his life as a human argument, the thing that we're, we're promoting. But he's self-limited, and therefore, he is susceptible to temptation and sin, just as we are. And if you think I'm making stuff up, Samuel, how about we go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Read that for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah. We have to understand the meaning of that. He felt temptation for real, exactly like we do. The difference is, he never gave into it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so important. So now, having established that, Jesus really, really, really feels temptation and actually really, really has the ability to succumb to that temptation. Well, now let's go see what he's tempted with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to jump too forward in the story real quick, I just want people to think in the back of their minds as we're showing this, if you jump to the end of the story with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have a perfect example of him actually wrestling with temptation, with him saying, I know what is coming, and there's a part of me that really does not want to do this. I want this cup to pass from me, but I know at the end of the day, it's not what I want but it's what you want, God. So just just keep that wrestling. That's a perfect picture to think, like in this text, like I know it doesn't show the wrestling, but if if the character of Jesus stays consistent throughout the story, then we should expect him to experience the challenge of it in the same way. Yes, exactly. And that's what we're going to see. So remember, the devil begins with, if you are the Son of God... As if that's in question. I mean, what did God just say from heaven? You are my son. Yeah. And the devil begins immediately with, if you are the son of God, 
right? It's, and then he commands him. It's just like the uh, Genesis 3 thing with like the serpent wasn't telling outright lies. Like he was, he was taking yeah. like half truths and bending them. Exactly right. Yeah. It's not like the guy is super creative and has come up with new tactics all throughout human history. It's the same stuff over and over. We just keep falling for it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so if you are the son of God, and then he commands him to turn stones to bread. So, let's think about that. Well, Jesus was hungry, or and hungered, pick your, you know, whatever. He was hungry. He had the Holy Spirit, and was now, at least as far as we can understand, he was fully able to turn those stones to bread. And... There's a sense in which that action even fits with his role as king of the messianic kingdom. That kingdom, uh, it's, it's abundant provision. He is the provision and the source. I mean, this is all lining up. No matter how you slice it, get it? Turning stones to bread? Hey. No matter how you slice it, this was a good temptation. And you have to get it in your head. Jesus had the ability to succumb to it because he was self-limiting his divine nature. He was living as a human. Okay? But watch what Jesus does. He quotes part of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, as his response. There's a very interesting thing that's happening in the Hebrew that we don't normally see in our English translations. But if you go look at the Hebrew, it's just, it's hilarious. Daniel Lancaster, I mean, since we're throwing names around, we may as well get his out there too. Yeah. Daniel Lancaster, he points this out in Deuteronomy. What it actually says is, the man does not live by bread alone, but the man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So you just think about that for a second. We've, we've, uh, posited this idea that Jesus is the true man, the consummate man. And then it, the question would be this, is it possible? We saw God using the same approach to the scriptures that our gospel writers had been using. Is it possible that here Jesus is using the exact same approach to the scriptures as our writers have, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it has a plain meaning in its original context. Is he seeing the foreshadow of Messiah in that verse. If so, the cool thing is Jesus isn't just refusing the temptation, but he's also refuting the suggestion that he isn't really the Son of God. Because who is the man? It's Jesus. It's Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. The man. So it's just cool that he's actually refuting both by quoting a single verse. And if the, if the Greek had been faithful to the original Hebrew and our English was faithful to that Greek being faithful to the Hebrew, we would have seen it, but we don't. But I just think that's a cool picture. Yeah, and there's so many callbacks to the Torah and Israel in, in the desert in their time of testing as well. I mean, that, that is one of the commandments that God gave Israel and then after he married them at Sinai in Numbers, that's like their honeymoon phase in the desert, 
God yeah. and Israel getting to know one another. And one of the tests was waiting upon the word of God for provision with water. Uh, and they grumbled about it and they succumbed to it. But they di- little did they know that there were those springs just around the corner in the next oh. turn of the wadi and yeah. how it it even there were enough springs to provide water for each of the tribes of Israel. Yeah. I don't know. And and then it yeah. calls back to God being able to produce water from the rock for them in the desert. And yeah. and Jesus is probably thinking about that. It's like, man, my ancestors were able to produce water from a rock like <laughs> I could do the same with bread from a rock, but he chose not to. I don't know. Just yeah. so many Torah callbacks right now. Oh, I know. I know. It, it, they they never stop. And and once you get used to hearing us doing it and you start doing it yourself, you know, you're going to start thinking, oh, you guys missed it. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's a ton that we miss. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're trying to show by example, here's what it looks like, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. You see all that stuff. Um, so here's Jesus, real temptation, uh, but he overcomes it. And how does he do that? With scripture, or you might say the word. Mm-hmm. Ooh, nice. It's written and it's him. Ah, so uh, we get to the next one, Matthew. Okay, so this is going to be a little weird. We're actually kind of flipping around the Luke passages a little bit because they're not in the same order. Um, and so I just picked the order that I don't know felt like it made the most sense to me. Whatever uh, you you may like it or dislike it, I don't know. But here's what we're going to do: Matthew chapter four, verses five through seven. And now Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. This is a little bit weird there. Um, so which one should I read? Uh, let's go ahead and we'll just do Luke's and see how that works out for us. Luke 4, 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Hmm. Now this is interesting. So, number one, uh, he took him to Jerusalem. Or as Matthew says, the devil took him to the holy city. Wow, how did he do that? I mean, is this like they literally walked along on the road together to go to Jerusalem and they had a conversation all along the way? Wow, that would have been interesting, huh? Yeah. Or is this more like, you know, Bewitched or some other TV thing, whatever, where the devil just kind of wrinkled his nose and boom, they were in Jerusalem? Uh, I don't know. It kind of feels like that when you read it, but we don't know. How does the devil take him to Jerusalem? It seems that he does have some abilities or, uh, as I've heard it said, some skills to pay the bills, (laughs) right? Uh, we don't know how to happen. We're, you know, we're left to speculate, but let's see what we got. The next thing is he, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, you'd think that one would be easy, but uh, that one's kind of vague too. And and there are many convincing arguments on many different sides. 
Uh, some of them, you know, it's like, well, this is actually part of the wall because there's a big valley beneath. So it's a very high point in relation to the valley. And, you know, some talk about a particular part of the temple itself and, you know, why that's important. And I mean, it could be any of those. I, I'm partial to it being the temple itself. But, I, I, you know, that's again, that's just a, I don't know, it's what feels good to me. Uh, what we know, though, is it's a high place. And it is connected to the temple in Jerusalem. So picture it in your head, whatever way you want to. But then he says, again, if you are the son of God, he continues to challenge his very identity. You should notice that because he's going to do the same thing to you. Maybe not in the same way, but he's challenging your identity. Remember that. And then then he says, Throw yourself down. And I don't know if you guys remember, these are supposed to be temptations. Temptations that actually work on this man, Jesus. Well, what is tempting about throw yourself down? That doesn't seem tempting at all. But I'm going to venture to say, I don't think that was supposed to be the tempting part. Here's what I mean. Let's go look at Psalm, well, Okay, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. We don't have to go look, because that's what's here. Um, When he says he will command his angels concerning you to guard you on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. Okay, that's Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. This is the temptation. Satan is interpreting this portion of Psalm 91 to be about Messiah. And we might as well go there if our gospel writers are teaching the scriptures in a certain way and God seems to kind of follow along on board. And then, my goodness, Jesus seems to, like all everybody seems to be uh, following on board. Is Satan himself actually following sort of this Jewish mode of teaching as well? Is he pulling Psalm 91 out and trying to make it fit in the big picture? Except, you know... Slyly and tricker, trickerily, something. I don't know what the word is. <laughs> Satan wants Jesus to prove whether he really is Messiah or not. Demonstrate it. If you really got the goods, man, show people, right? Which is actually an awful lot like the first temptation. They feel completely different, but. There's a lot of similarity there. And interestingly, this is the funny thing. So Satan goes back. He's, he's calling out scripture, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He's using those as a temptation. But if you step back and you look at the real thrust of Psalm 91, like what's the real point behind it all? It's to trust in God and to be loyal to God alone. And so even in this, you see how it is that Satan is using common techniques. He's using scriptures that seem to read and make perfect sense, but he's just, he's always giving him that little twist, avoiding the real meaning, avoiding, avoiding the bigger picture and trying to get Jesus in this case, or you in your everyday life to get off the path. It's, it's a great picture. Yeah. it. This picture comes to mind for me. I, hopefully I'm not downplaying Jesus in any way here, but 
in the same way where with us in our lives where we have something that almost unequivocally feels like God moving on our on our behalf, providing in such a way where it's like, I don't know how to explain what just happened other than like God stepping in and taking care of this with God doing that with him, like speaking to him as clearly as one could be spoken to by God to tell him that he is the Messiah, beloved son and everything. Yeah. I still feel like there's a human capacity that, has that little voice of doubt in the back of your mind that's like, did yeah. that really happen? Like, did God actually just speak to me right now? Like, is it, am I just imagining any of this? And I can just picture Jesus wrestling with that to be like, how am I supposed to know? Like, I know that this happened, but there's a part of me that feels like it's all too good to be true or something. I don't know. That just feels like a very yeah. human response to be wrestling with in that moment. Yeah. I think it's very reasonable to think that Jesus had to wrestle with things like we do. Just because he never gave in to any of it and was perfect doesn't mean he didn't face it in a way just like us. And that's what that Hebrews verse was saying. Yeah, it's it's good. And and I think for for people trying to walk a Christian walk, it's super encouraging knowing that. So Mm -hmm. anyway, how does Jesus respond? Very much like the first time he goes to scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 16 this time. And, And this, see, the thing is, this would have been testing the very words that God had spoken, the thing you were just talking about, Samuel. God says, you are my son. In you, I am pleased. So if God says that, then for you to go out and purposely risk harm to yourself, just to see if he would save you? Would he really do what he said? Am I really the one? Well, that, that, that would have been unbelief, right? And even if Jesus had those little thoughts, if he had that moment of wrestling, he chooses to walk in belief. He chooses to walk in trust, And so, I don't know, for different people, I'm not sure how much this one feels like a real temptation. You know, the first one was so much easier, the hunger and the, you know, the power to do and all that kind of thing. I think for some people, they're going to relate deeply to this temptation. And I think others will be like, "Hmm, yeah, you know, I guess I could see it, whatever. But you got to remember, this is Jesus. And so given the context, given the story, given all of this, this must have been a real temptation for him. Just think, 40 days without food. Physically, Jesus is probably in a vulnerable state. And so regardless of how you relate to the temptation, I think that we have to look at this and think, you know what? This had to be pretty tough, probably tougher than we think. Totally. Yeah, just bringing that home. Remember, he's a man facing temptation, and it's real. He could give in, and so that had to be a real temptation for Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do the next one. Uh, and now, again, we're kind of messing up the order of the verses, but, but I'll, just so you know where we're at, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and then Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. So again, you see it switched up a little bit, but Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and read. I guess we'll do the Luke one. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him 
all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Wow, there is some stuff happening in here, right? First of all, the devil took him up. Up where? I don't know. Matthew says to a very high mountain, whatever. I don't know. But notice that Satan has kind of given up on the whole if you are the son of God thing. Mm -hmm. He's switching tactics in in some sense. Now, the thing is, uh, we don't really know how much detail Jesus knew of his own future. And, and uh, you know, eventually we'll get there. Various scriptures seem to suggest that, I mean, he definitely wasn't all-knowing, but some of those scriptures might even suggest that Jesus didn't fully know the end of the plan for his life, uh, meaning his death and resurrection, all that, right? Now, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a tricky little thing because he's, you know, he has uh, limited his himself from his divinity, if you will. And like, if you were to look, uh, let's go there, Samuel, look at Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Can you read that? Mm-hmm. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Yeah. So when it says they spoke of his departure, now it could be that it's like, you know, these guys are hanging out. Hey, dude, I guess this is that time that we all knew was coming. You ready for this? Yeah, dude, you know, I was born for this moment. It could be like that. Or some have suggested that it's something more along the lines of, hey, um, that whole thing about the kingdom. Well, it's not going to go the way we hoped. And so we're here to let you know what's going to happen. You need to head on in Jerusalem and uh, you're going to be killed and we're going to work this whole thing out. But uh, the kingdom's going to be put off for a little while, right? I mean, we don't know. We don't know what ex- what exactly they spoke of, what they're trying to communicate. I just bring that up just to say, don't make Jesus into the all-knowing God at every single moment of his life, it is possible that there were things that he did not know. Now, I can't tell you exactly what was what, but leave a little room, I guess is what I'm saying. Leave room for Jesus to have things yet to be discovered. Because mm-hmm. if you don't do that, it like when you read through this these temptations with that lens of, all-knowing, totally God, just wrapped in flesh, that kind of thing. It makes the devil's temptations feel like underhanded, slow, softball pitches to set up 
you know, for Jesus to just squash without any problem. Like, right. I don't know. It, 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 it feels way less personal in that regard than like, no, there's something deeper here. Like each one of these had to have had some type of personal connection and importance to Jesus for him to struggle with it. If it was a temptation that he had the ability to give into. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that is really good. Now, okay, so let's do it this way. Um, we kind of have an idea because we know things, right? We've read Bibles. We get, so there's a sense in which we, th- th- this temptation is an understandable one, okay? You can rule the whole world without all of the pain and suffering. Jesus doesn't have to go through pain and suffering. Israel doesn't have to go through pain and suffering. All the nations don't go, right? Satan's just going to give it all to him. But here's the kicker. All you have to do is worship Satan instead of God. Now, again, exactly what you were saying. We might look at that and go, softball pitch, whatever. No. Remember, there must have been some real temptation in this for Jesus. Don't don't miss out on that, okay? Now, we often don't notice. Uh, Here's the thing. The, The kingdoms of this world... He's offering to give him the kingdoms of the world. He's offering to give him the authority and the glory and whatever that even is, right? Well, hold on a second. Um, Satan had to have it to be able to give it away, right? Notice Jesus didn't say, "Uh, excuse me, that's not even yours to give, (laughs) right? He didn't. Satan actually has some measure of authority and and this glory of the nations and all. He has it to give away, and this is still true today. We could say that it's diminished because, you know, we know what Jesus has accomplished, etc., etc., but again, we know we're not living in the kingdom fully, and so there's a sense in which he still exercises some sort of authority over these things. That's a really uh, sobering thought. But also notice that Jesus had a full understanding of his own authority as well. He knows that in the end, he trumps whatever it is that Satan has, rightfully or not, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, at light, and this is kind of funny. If you went to the Matthew version, uh, Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, right? Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. Uh, he commands Satan to leave. God, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus knows not only that his authority exceeds Satan's in every way, but that he himself has authority over Satan. And that is an awesome picture. And, you know, I mean, people like to say we have authority over Satan, and there is an aspect of that that is true through Messiah, our relationship with him. There, there is a truth to that. But understand that Jesus is separate and distinct from us. So that's an important part as well. Uh, but anyway, a final point, Jesus once again, a counter, he counters Satan with Scripture. And this time he goes to Deuteronomy 6.13 Uh, Jesus, see, this is what's so good. He understands the heart of the matter. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. 
without a sincere, faithful, loyal worship of God or service to God, God alone, all gain is meaningless. It's just, it doesn't mean anything. He could have taken the easy way out. We don't really know that what, what that would have meant, but it looked like an easy way out, and Jesus knows, no, that, that's meaningless. It may look good, but it doesn't measure up to what God has. And then I would also say it's important to note, where did Jesus get all of his scripture for the countering all of these temptations? Samuel, did you notice that? From the Torah specifically, all three references came from the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, Deuteronomy. It's not just any scripture. Uh, You're right, it's Torah. Deuteronomy is the second word or the second law. Moses recounting it. Oh, Deuteronomy, I love reading Deuteronomy. But that's where Jesus goes to counter every temptation that Satan is bringing against him. I just think that's important uh, for people who think the Old Testament doesn't matter. For Jesus, it was his first and primary, in fact, in this case, his only weapon. Yeah, and it's even more important, this is another Marty Solomon teaching, but the in Jewish thinking, the point of the book of Deuteronomy, if you're going to sum it up in a sentence is the call to remember the story. Like if you read the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over again, God is telling Moses to tell the people, remember, remember the covenant, remember what I did for you, remember where I brought you out of. And then therefore, because you remember that, go be that to the people who are enslaved, who are oppressed, like who do not have the story and who are not living it out. So in this case, Jesus is doing what God asked Moses for Israel to do. He is remembering the story, the biblical narrative of trusting like that God has given him everything that he needs. I think that that is, I just was thinking that as you were laying this whole out, that is so cool that, that Jesus is like doing the purpose of Deuteronomy right now, is remembering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very, very good. Very, very good. All right, Uh, this probably is going to feel like not a good place to break, Mm -mm. but I'm doing it anyway, (laughs) Uh, because we went long last time, and I just, I feel bad about it when we do it. So uh, we're going to stop this one, um, and we're going to pick up at the end of the temptations uh, and moving on into the next section. But there's some neat stuff there, and I don't want to just rush over it or hold you all too long. So Yeah, it's a good cliffhanger to to leave and come back. That's right. Gotta love the cliffhanger. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie most podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now on pretty much all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Facebook, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit us on our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or concerns or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. 
Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.